me uh, to Luke chapter 9. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we go verse by verse the Bible, as Scott mentioned, this coming Wednesday. We'll have a three-week uh, study from Pastor Joe Fos, Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. He's been preaching, I don't know, 30-some years or so. Uh, so I will introduce this Wednesdays. Uh, I'm going to be out of town uh, a couple of Wednesdays in September. So uh, we're going to be showing uh, Pastor Joe teaching on parental stewardship and stewardship and marriage. I know all of us want to be better parents and better spouses. And if you're not married yet uh, or you uh, intend to get him married, these will be good things for you uh, as well. So that'll be this Wednesday. But uh, and then we'll get back into our Ezekiel study in October, uh, coming back to the book of Ezekiel. But we're in the book of Luke. For those of you that are visiting with us, uh, we're taking our third section of text from the book of Luke, starting with verse, um, starting with verse 18. So if you have your Bibles open, we'll be reading verses 18 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring you one so you can read along with us. Uh, just raise your hand. Yep, We'll bring you one there, starting with verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say, One of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and his himself is destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of of God. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit now, the Spirit, Lord, that compelled Luke to write these very words, Lord, that you would speak to each and every heart, bring comfort, bring conviction, bring clarity, Lord, as only you can do, and Lord, that you would bring us all nearer in our walk with you. If anyone doesn't know you here as Lord and Savior, if their name is not written in your land's book of life, may be, today be the day that they would give their lives to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A gentleman by the name of W.H. Griffith wrote this about a man by the name of Holman Hunt. He said, Holman Hunt, a surrealist artist, painted the interior of a carpenter's shop with Joseph and a young Jesus working. Mary was also present. As Jesus paused in his work and stopped to stretch himself, kind of like you know you do sometimes, the sun made a shadow of the cross on the wall. Another of his pictures is a popular engraving which depicts the infant Jesus running with outstretched arms to his mother, the shadow of the cross being cast by his form 
as he runs. Both pictures are illustrative in form, but their underlying idea is assuredly true. If we read the Gospels just as they stand, it is clear that the death of Christ was really in view from the outset of his early appearance. We know that Jesus knew why he came to the earth. Amen? Not everyone else knew when they first met him, but we know he knew why he came. Jesus expressly stated that the journey he was on, the purpose of his life was to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and die there. It's stated numerous times in the Gospels. He was to go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice, but he conveyed that his true disciples, they would actually follow him by dying to their will, although many of them would die literally, exactly. Even Peter himself would be crucified upside down. But they would be dying to their will and taking up their own cross in surrendered lives. And this is what the Lord wants for us as well, that, that surrendered will, taking up, uh, as he says, if anyone desires to follow me. Anyone. By the way, whenever Jesus says anyone, he means anyone. If anyone desires to follow me, that they would be doing the exact same thing, that surrender of the will, taking up the cross and following him by that sacrifice that takes place of our will, laying it down at the foot of the cross. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, The Way of the Cross. The Way of the Cross. And uh, we'll look at three things from the text this morning. His ministry, His mission, and His mandate. His ministry, His mission, and His mandate. Now, I think you would agree with me that uh, in 2014... The message of the cross is not a real popular message. It's really not. You can travel from church to church all over America. You'll see, you'll see crosses in the building. You'll see crosses on people's neck. You'll see uh, crosses that are demonst- or illustrative of this church uh, believes in the cross and those type of things. But I'm talking about the message of the cross has gotten more and more and more and more quiet. By the way, I don't know about you, but uh, when we see the brutality of what's taking place in the Middle East, some of which has been crucifixion, it reminds us just how barbaric and cruel this method was that the Romans instituted, although it, uh, we believe that some of the origins came before them. But the way of the cross is never really pleasant thing to consider, but what God does through it is beautiful. Amen? Because without it, we have no hope. And this is why Jesus came. He came the way of the cross, and he's bidding us to come in that same direction. But let's start off by looking at uh, where, this, uh, where this conversation begins. And as at verse 18, as it happened, as he was alone, what? Praying. He's alone praying. Uh, Jesus, before he's going to give these most important words, we see him alone with the Father, praying. 
you and I to really understand the gravity of anything Jesus is saying to you, uh, to, to us, we have to have a prayer life, amen? We have to be in prayer. It's in prayer that the Lord teaches us what these things mean, that the Holy Spirit ministers and helps us to take difficult steps, that we really uh, begin to hear the teachings of Jesus and apply them in our lives. Now, Jesus didn't need to have a prayer life to do these things. He always had the intimacy with the Father, but it is for our learning to know that even Jesus, who had all the power and authority of the universe, was in that intimate time and prayer. But as he was praying, his disciples joined him. And isn't it great uh, when the disciples, they are always being taught by Jesus even when he's not speaking. When they, they walk up and he's alone with the Lord in prayer. Parents, when our kids come and they walk in and see you praying, it makes a bigger statement oftentimes than things you will say. True? People are observing what you and I actually do, what we actually believe, how we actually live, and it's very important that as we follow the Lord, people can see it observable in our life. And Jesus, of course, always setting the right example, alone with the Father's praying. But he breaks from his time with prayer to begin to teach them, and he teaches oftentimes a great teaching way is to ask a question, isn't it? So he asked them this question, if you're taking notes under uh, ministry, he's asking them uh, two questions actually, what, who the crowd say I am and uh, who do you say that I am. But he knew that a lot of crowds followed him. And of course Jesus, whenever he asks a question, he already knows the answer to all the questions. He's asking them for the benefit of those that he is teaching. But he knows that these crowds followed him. He knows that many of them actually kind of understood the itinerant route he began to take, and they would actually run ahead and meet him in different places, as we saw uh, even last week with the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Many, many of these people, they loved the ministry of Jesus. They loved the, be clear on this, they loved the ministry of Jesus. As K.P. O'Hannon often says, many Christians love their Bible, they just don't love the Jesus in the Bible. They love the ministry of Jesus. Many of the people love the ministry of Jesus. Some liked the ministry of Jesus. Not necessarily loved the ministries, but they liked the ministries. Some loathed the ministry of Jesus. And some of them even loathed it still would go, listen, the Pharisees had to send their entourage. They didn't like his ministry, but they were always there to try and trap, to try and see if they could catch him in something he wasn't, uh, that he didn't say quite right which never worked, always backfired on them. But nevertheless, some loved his ministry, some liked it, some loathed it. Uh, remember this, though. Jesus doesn't do anything for the approval of man one way or the other. He even warned the disciples, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's a warning for us, too. We don't try and make ourselves uh, offensive to people, quite the opposite. We want to be humble, peaceful, loving, gracious. But look at our brothers and sisters that are dying. Some of those are some of the kindest people on earth being cruelly put to death. Why? Because they don't like the Lord in them. It has nothing to do with them. Jesus says, not you they hate, it's me they hate. But these crowds, for the most part at this time, most of the people didn't look like they hated Jesus. 
Quite the opposite. That's why he had multitudes. Most of them looked like they really did love Jesus. They really did want to follow him. They really did love his teaching. Many were greatly impressed. Many were amazed at the miracles that Jesus did. I would have been amazed at the miracles Jesus did. I've never seen anyone perform a miracle. These things were amazing. Many had been healed by him. Many had been personally touched and benefited by his miraculous touch. Many had been fed, physically fed, bread, fish as we saw, but also uh, they were always spiritually fed whenever Jesus taught. But here's the question. Even though they were amazed, even though they were fed, even though they enjoyed hearing him speak, even though they were amazed, he said things that no man had ever said, he taught like no other man, but were they repentant of their sin and were they trusting in Jesus? The ministry of Jesus, it was a revelation of two things. Well, it was a revelation of many things, but I'm saying two things that we know for sure uh, that it was a constant revelation of, the ministry of Jesus. It was constantly revealing who he was, but it was also revealing who they that were hearing him were. And whenever the word is proclaimed, it always reveals who God is, but it also reveals how we receive it, who we are or where we're at, doesn't it? How we receive the Word of God reveals where we're at, and at the same time, His Word is revealing Him. They knew Jesus was a great man. Many, they knew He was a prophet. He didn't deny that He was a, he was a prophet. The prophet like unto Moses, greater than Moses. They knew He was a teacher. But did they really know and did they really believe that He was their only hope? Did they really know that? Did they really believe he was their only hope? Did they know and believe that unless they put their faith and trust in him, that they would eventually perish? Jesus used the word to be destroyed there in um, the last few verses, in uh, verse 25 actually. Did they know this? Were, were they truly listening? Jesus always would say, you know, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, everyone, well, we all have ears. Yeah, you, I mean, you have physically, but are your spiritual ears actually hearing what the Father is saying through the Son? Many people know who Jesus is. The Satan, uh, Satan and his demons, they knew who Jesus was, right? They trembled, feared. It would be good if Everyone had a little healthy fear of the Lord Jesus. But that's not the case either, in most cases. So Jesus asked the disciples the first of two questions. The crowds had heard Jesus. Many had saw the witness of his power. Some uh, probably even had seen, uh, had been there uh, when the spirit, the dove descended upon him at the baptism. I mean, the revelation of who he was was evident and yet he asked this question, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do they say that I am? You know, in my Bible, I look at that, and I see that uh, there's even a little bit of a hint here. He finishes with the statement, I am. Who do they say I am? He is the I am. And once the, once the spiritual light bulb goes off, you start to see Jesus for all of the glory that he is. The answers are telling, though. The disciples, they're 
just giving what they've heard people say. These crowds, some of them heard Jesus speak in numerous villages. And the answers they give are telling. They give these names of John the Baptist, who Jesus testified was a great man born of woman. Elijah, we know he was a great prophet of the Lord, used in a mighty way. Others said some of the other old prophets that had risen could be Isaiah, could be Jeremiah. There was other prophets that had gone before, Malachi, many others. Moses himself was a prophet. Uh, but these men, although they were good men, uh, in the sense that God had taken them and made them into good men, good, good men that God had used, but these men were men that God had used, but none of these men could save other people, nor could they save even themselves. You know, Elijah couldn't save himself. John the Baptist couldn't save John the Baptist says he wasn't even worthy to touch Jesus' dirty sandal strap, right? That's what John the Baptist said. So uh, those, they had, uh, when you start to call Jesus anything less than he is, you have lowered him to your level. And so they were giving names that they could relate to. Humanity down through the ages. And by the way, naming these different men, even though Jesus, never once did Jesus say, ladies and gentlemen, I am Elijah. He never said that. Never did he say, come to them and say, ladies and gentlemen, I am John the Baptist. Which would have been, have been impossible most of the time because they were both alive at the same time until recently. Right? If John the Baptist was teaching over here and Jesus was teaching over here, how could Jesus be John the Baptist? It makes no sense. Now, I understand after John the Baptist had been beheaded, Herod thought Jesus had come back in the form, uh, or John the Baptist had come back in the form of, John, uh, of Jesus. But everyone would have known that they were alive a good 30 years at the exact same time. Right? If me and my cousin are both alive at the same time, I cannot be my cousin. Right? Now, you can't really put any restraints on Jesus, but that the point is they were just giving these different names, men that were good men, men that might have even been great men, even the estimation of scriptures, but men that were not actually God. See, all through time, century after century after century, Men love to follow men. Right? Everyone loves heroes, whether it's sports, whether it's Hollywood, and people love to follow great men. People say, oh, I wouldn't follow him, but yet everyone's following somebody. People love men. I mean, that's why dictators rise to incredible power. That's why people will follow certain you know, uh, the old saying, I would follow that coach through a wall, right? People will follow certain executives, and people love to follow men, and this is where you get guys like Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha and many others, and very evil dictators, as I mentioned, have raised up. People love following men, but they just don't want to follow the man that's actually God. So rather than Jesus' own witness and testimony... He's testified of who he is. Must be Elijah. Must be John the Baptist raised from, uh, raised from the dead. 
Well, you realize that him and John the Baptist uh, are related and they were both... Well, it doesn't matter. Facts are irrelevant. Right? You try and show someone from the Bible, this is what the Bible actually says. I don't need to read what the Bible says. It's your interpretation. Right? That's your interpretation. Everybody's got an interpretation. They don't think that about anything else in life, but they do think it as it relates to God. Back in Luke 5, verse 6, Jesus had proclaimed, this is what Jesus had proclaimed to the Pharisees back in Luke 5, 6. He said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. That's pretty conclusive, isn't it? They knew who the Lord of the Sabbath was. They knew that was Yahweh. He was claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, that he was equivalent, that he was in fact Yahweh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elijah and John the Baptist, they never made such a claim. Quite the opposite. They needed mercy just like us. He had asked the disciples, and the multitude back in uh, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, he had asked them, he asked them this question. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? So I'm like, gulp, I guess we shouldn't call you Lord anymore. Maybe we call you John the Baptist instead. Because if we don't call you Lord, then we're not responsible for our response. As if you can play reverse psychology on God. But people do this all the time. They, they think God doesn't see what they do. They think God doesn't see what they think. And so if I just call him something else, I'm not really accountable to him. So they'll say something like this. Well, he was a good man. Jesus was a good man. As if that patronizing statement is going to actually help you in the day you see Christ face to face. I said you were a good man. I said you were Elijah. Elijah can't get you into heaven. I said you were John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't die for you. John the Baptist had sin in his blood. I did not. So they would, Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Some people may have been genuinely confused. Granted, Jesus is gracious. Sometimes people really don't. You ever run into someone who they really, truly, they honestly, they've never heard much of the gospel. They don't know much of the Bible, and they start to ask you some really childlike, sincere questions. Aren't those great? Because you know they're not playing a mind game of trying to convince themselves that they're okay. They're truly saying, I've never heard this before. Tell me more. Truly, there were some that might have been confused and come up and see Jesus for the first time and say, who is this man? Is this a, is this a prophet raised from the dead? Some may have been confused. But the vast majority of this wasn't the case. They may have just stumbled upon Jesus. And so some could misperceive at first. And by the way, in life, for a time, and sometimes for a lifetime, depending on what it is, people may misperceive misunderstand and not perceive your ministry either. We need to understand that. People will not always understand. You know, when you first got saved, your parents might, you know, let's say you had unsaved parents. What are you thinking? You've always been a good kid. Why do you need this? You remember all the good stuff you used to do? Why do you need this? No, I'm not a good person. What if I tell you all the things I never told you, mom and dad? <laughs> will you still think I was a good person? Right? 
And people will not perceive, they'll, they'll, they'll think your motives. Your motives are, well, you're just, you're just doing this to show the rest of us or this, or your motives at work, oh, you're the holier-than-thou one. You're so much better than the rest of us, right? Motives, people will judge your motives. People will make assessments. Your family will, your coworkers will, your neighbor will, neighbors will. But those who had been exposed to Jesus' teaching for any length of time, those who had heard him teach, they had no excuse, did they? They could try and make them. You can sow fig leaves like Adam and Eve did if you want to, but they had no excuses. They had no straw man they could really hold on to. And so many in the crowds, they never called him Lord, but they still liked to hear him teach. I remember me and my wife got... um, Again, going to a church will not save you. None of those kind of things. It has to be a personal exchange and a relationship, a conversion that only the Holy Spirit can bring about through genuine repentance, a work of the Spirit. I remember when me and my wife got invited to Calvary Fort Lauderdale. Well, Originally, I got invited because one of my friends uh, had started going to a Bible study and he invited me. Uh, And after we uh, started going, we, we got a bunch of friends going. Back then it was in the mid-90s, there was this show on TV called Melrose Place. You guys remember that? And we kind of looked like that, our, our group. Uh, it, it was, uh, it was, we were living in Miami. It was kind of like that. And uh, a bunch of us started going, and we went for a while. And the original people who invited us all bailed and went the other way. We were the last two of like 15 that actually walked forward an aisle wept for, and were forgiven of our sins, and our lives were transformed. The rest of them just faded away back into everything. See, for a time, the crowds will gather. And they used to love to hear the teaching there and the worship there and all of that stuff, but their hearts weren't with Christ. Now, I pray that some of them are today. I don't know where they're at in the world. Maybe some have come to know the Lord. I know one guy that I used to witness to, uh, was a friend of mine, called me up like four years after and says, I've been radically changed, radically saved. But many in the crowds, they wouldn't, they didn't want to know who Jesus really was because the more they knew who he was, the more they would have to follow him completely, which he's about to teach on. Now, Ray Comfort talks about this with atheists. He says, the atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. <laughs> right? Same thing. You can't, people, they would know who Jesus was if they wanted to know who Jesus was. Everyone will know who Jesus is, what his name is, who he really is, if they want to know. When people really want to know something, they go find it. They will search it. They will hunt down the information. When they want to know, when it really matters, people will want to know. If they don't want to know, he's Elijah. John the Baptist. Second question, though, Jesus says, all right, all right. So who do you say I am? I've heard there, and Jesus knew what they thought. He knew that, but he says, now, Peter and the other apostles, who do you say that I am? And you've got to love Peter's response. The Christ of God. The Christ of God. Matthew records that he says, the Son of God of the living God, the Son of the living God, equal to the Father. The 
word Christ, if you were with us way back in uh, early chapters of, of Luke, that word Christ, it means Messiah. We love that word, don't we? That's the anointed one. He was anointed uh, as Savior, anointed as Master, anointed as King. And Peter is affirming, you are the anointed. You're, you're God's anointed son. You are the son of the living God. He didn't say, you're Elijah. You're John the Baptist. He said, you are the son of God. You created John the Baptist. You created Elijah. You're the anointed Messiah. You're the king of kings and Lord of lords. You're the anointed one of Daniel chapter 9. That's what our response should be. You know, later in the book of John, when many were walking away from Jesus, and Jesus makes a statement, do you too want to leave? Peter makes the wise response prompted by the Holy Spirit, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now Jesus is going to get to what it all comes down to eternal life. It all comes down to that. See, what, once if you've amassed a fortune and you've done it all and you've traveled every continent and everything else, you still have to die someday. And you still have to meet God face to face. And then it will really matter which man you followed in life. I didn't follow any man. I did it Frank Sinatra's way, my way. Right? Which is a really cool sounding, I love Sinatra's music, and it's a really cool sounding song if the words weren't so messed up, <laughs> right? Because when you die and you did it your way, it's a scary thing. Let's look at what Jesus talks about next here, because he wants to get into that a little bit. All right, now, Peter, that you understand who I am, and the disciples, you guys know who I am, I want you to understand the urgency of the life you're going to live in following me. And he begins in verse 21 and 22 by telling them, if you're taking notes, his mission. They never seem to get this. Uh, every time he talked about this, uh, it's recorded again um, in Luke chapter 18. I'll read that in one second. But let's look at what Jesus says here. Uh, so he has them aside. They, they come upon him. He's praying. He, uh, he's interrupts or stops the prayer time to ask them these two questions. They affirm, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus now tells them, all right, I want you to be quiet, I want you to listen to this, and I don't want you to tell anyone. Verse 21, he strictly warned them not to tell a soul, at least at this point. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Now, I don't know about you, but this is very detailed. Imagine telling someone this much detail, not necessarily this, but if I told you, all right, here's the deal. You're going to go over here, and this is going to happen, and it's going to be these specific people. It'll be the chief of police. It'll be this person. It'll be this person, and it'll all happen, and then three days later, the following will happen. So he's very specific. He says, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things, He'll be rejected by the elders, that's the Sanhedrin, that he would stand before when they have the kangaroo court in the middle of the night. You'll, the elders of the Sanhedrin. The elders in the Sanhedrin and the chief priests, Caiaphas, the scribes, and I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to be raised the third day. Third day. 
Now, we know Jesus says this a couple of times. He tells the disciples this a couple of times. In Luke 18, you don't have to turn there, but you go forward a few chapters to Luke 18, verse 34. Jesus had just said something very similar as in verse 32 and 33. And it said, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that were spoken. They didn't understand that Jesus had told them very specifically about his death and resurrection, how it would take place. He even tells them it's going to be in Jerusalem uh, at a later date. Everything, and it went over their heads. Here's the cool thing, though. Although that went over their heads, they had already believed upon him, hadn't they? Because Jesus said, who do you say that I am? They had already believed on Jesus. They had put their faith and trust in Jesus. When others would walk away, they stayed. Now they did walk, they did, they did waver at the cross, that's true. But they were brought back rather quickly, weren't they? Because their hearts had already been wedded to the Lord and saving faith. You and I will falter at times, won't we? We'll skin our knees at times too, won't we? But the Lord gets us back up. But, did you, but they didn't understand his mission yet. His eyes, they were set on Jerusalem. To the day he would lay down his life on that cruel Roman cross, he lived every single day in preparation for Golgotha, also known to us as Calvary. Every single day he lived in preparation for it. Remember when Nicodemus came to him in the night? Everybody knows John 3.16, right? But you've got to love John 3.17 as well, where Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Saved from what? Saved from boredom? Saved from aimless, just kind of goofing off? Saved from monotony? No, save from hell. The cross isn't popular teaching, but neither is hell, folks. If you hear people preach today, they think you're being saved from just a moderate life into an even cooler life. It came to save us from destruction. I don't know if you know it, but your body is fading away. At 45, I know it a lot more than I did at 25. Right? I now know it's going to return to dirt. Parts of it feel like it now. <laughs> he came to save us from the curse of sin and death and hell because everyone is appointed to die. He said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I didn't come to condemn the world. That happens when I come the second time. Second time he comes, he's coming to condemn the world. Everyone understand that? The second time he comes... He is not coming for salvation. He's coming for condemnation. There will be a bill to pay that no one has a check to write for that one. But the first time he came, he came to freely offer salvation. First time. And he said, the Son of Man didn't come to condemn. I've come, Nicodemus, to save the world. Now, when Jesus says save the world, understand what he is saying. In his mind, that's the cross. That's Jerusalem. That's the scourging. That's the suffering. That's the being turned over to the elders and the chief priests and scribes. When he says save the world, he's talking about the cross. Nicodemus, not quite sure what he's saying at that time. Later he would know it. Nicodemus would be one of the ones that would help bury Jesus, wouldn't he? Amazing. 
We know from Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews 12, verse 2, says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down at the right throne of God because he had finished it all. His whole mission, he states it right here. Here's the mission, guys. I have to suffer, I have to be killed, but I have to and will rise from the dead the third day. That's my mission. Everything else that I tell you is always going to come back to that central mission. Everything that you do the rest of your life will always come back to that central mission. Always what I did for all eternity is going to come back to the cross and my resurrection. They would get it later. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 22 through 24, and don't we know this is the truth? It was true when Paul wrote it, and it's true today. He said, for the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jew as a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Later, they would preach Jesus' mission always. Paul said, I'll only preach Christ and him what? Crucified. I came and you knew nothing else of me, but I would preach Christ and him crucified. Because Paul had a lot of abilities. He spoke multiple languages. He was well-educated, but he chose not to use his impressive credentials. Instead, he used the foolishness of the cross, which is not popular. No one would want to watch a crucifixion. No one would want to endure a crucifixion. And in those days it wouldn't dawn on anybody to wear a cross around their neck any more than it would dawn on them to wear guillotine around their neck, right? Or gallows around their neck. Didn't make any, no, they, nobody, and the Greeks would think that any kind of God, you know, if you were going to be a God like Thor, Jupiter, you don't go on a cross. You annihilate people which Jesus could have done, right? He said he could have called 10,000 angels, but he willingly went down, and that was not impressive to them. That was, there's no God that would be like that. And the Jews, they wanted a king. They didn't want a suffering lamb. That's for the temple sacrifices, but not for our king. But Jesus said, this is the mission. And then lastly, if you're taking notes, he gives us this mandate. He gives what the mission of his life is. He gives what the purpose of his life is. Do they fully understand at the time? No. But now he makes plain to them his mandate for their future life and ours as well. And I tell you what, if the cross isn't popular, neither are these next few verses. But I didn't write them. They're here whether we want to read them or not. They're still here, amen? And this is what Jesus said. And he said to them, all, the whole group, this applies to all that want to ever follow the Lord from now until the last person is born. Anyone that ever wants to follow the Lord, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What profit is a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? This has happened. 
You know, remember Alexander the Great? I have no more worlds to conquer. And he didn't die in battle. He catches sick and dies. He couldn't preserve his life. He was a young man. He gained as much of the world as he could gain. It doesn't really matter who it is. Jesus says you can gain it all. You can be the richest world. You can be Warren Buffett. You can be Bill Gates. You can have billions. And Jesus says, not impressive. Because one second after death, you're no different than the poorest man that ever lived. No difference. Whoever is ashamed of me, and then many people, this is why many people won't follow Christ. They're ashamed of what people think about them. I'll be called a born again. People will call me a wacky born again. Yeah, they will. That won't matter to you in eternity, though, will it? When you're with Jesus and he tells you, welcome, born again one, those words will have a whole different feeling, won't they? Then if he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You can be ashamed of him now, and he'll be ashamed of you later. Or you can say, I will follow you now, and he will not be ashamed of us later. That's the only choices. I know people try and make that there's other choices out there, that there's actually intermediate choices. We don't really have to follow him, follow him. Just kind of have to say a little prayer like this, and you're good to go. Now, it's true that we come by prayer, and we come by faith. But it has to be a surrender of our heart at the altar. Jesus said, whoever falls upon this rock will be broken. But he said, whoever this rock falls on will be ground into what? Powder. That's the only two choices. And so he says, take up your cross. If you really want to follow me, you're going to have to die to your will. You're going to have to give up the throne of your heart. It's not your life anymore. You don't get to pick what you do. I pick for you what I want you to do. I'll tell you where I want you to go. I'll tell you what I want you to do. You're no longer in control of your life. You can't do it your way anymore. Those days are over when you surrender the cross. I remember when I was, the day I got saved, um, I had been battling over coming to Christ for two full years. Did anyone ever go through that? You went through a, I mean, I was in this tug of war where Satan was on one side saying, come to hell. And the Lord was on the other side saying, come to heaven. And I was in the middle because there's a lot of fun that you can have before you go to hell. Right? And so I was really enjoying all that I was doing, but then a part of me was tormented because I said, I know that if I were to die, I'm not in a good place. I know I'm not ready to meet God. Because I believed the words were true, but I just didn't want to follow him. Because I knew if I had to follow him, I had to be at church on Sundays. No more volleyball on Sundays. No more surfing there in South Florida. These things, I, and I'm not kidding. By the way, I did have to give those things up. Not that I couldn't do them, but the Lord said, I want you in the house of the Lord when my people are gathered. I want you worshiping. I want you praying. And by the way, I'll give you a desire for it. But he doesn't tell you that first. You find that out after surrender. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get to know that. Then you find out, wow, I actually, this tastes good. I thought, but I first had to surrender. And I remember before I walked forward that aisle, I remember like my entire life feel like it passed for me. Every friend I would have to give up, ever everything. And Jesus said, is it worth it? I'm telling you it is. And I said, yeah, if I lose it all, I'm coming to Christ. What would it matter? 
I have a million friends and followers. But you end up in hell? A really poor exchange, isn't it? And so he gives them this mandate. You got to follow me. Take up your cross. Live a crucified life. Paul would write in Galatians 9.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives. Isn't that great? You and me have to die. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No one else has ever given themselves for you. Your sports team? Mm -mm. Your college? Didn't do it. Your boss? Definitely won't do it. Right? None of those have ever given their lives. Jesus said, I gave my life for you. Now you live a crucified life. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul said, look, follow my life. He goes, I, I, could, I could be living a much different life, but I've surrendered it all to follow Christ. And you follow the same way. Follow Christ with a reckless abandon. Take up your cross. Many have tried to make the gospel something that's not. And this is getting worse in the day. By the way, when Jesus teaches on the end times, Matthew chapter 24, also known as the Olivet Discourse, when he teaches on the end times, and you can start talking to people because people are starting to notice weird things are happening in the world. Earthquakes in various places. They notice the seas are raging, as the Bible says that they would. They notice that there are hot temperatures in different places. They notice there's famine, pestilence, Ebola, AIDS, cancer, scourges, all these things. And they're not getting better. They only are getting worse. But in all the things that Jesus warned of, three times in the Olivet Discourse, he warned of one thing three times. Everything else was not three times. Most of them were once. Three times he warned of the apostasy, the apostasy, the apostasy, the changing of the gospel. And he said they would actually use, and this, was, this had to blow the disciples away. He said they'll actually use my name to invoke their apostasy. They'll actually preach in my name, and they'll have you believe what you're hearing is the true gospel, and it's not. And so there's a gospel that teaches now that God wants you to attain in this life everything you ever dreamed of. Everything. You want a fancier car? God wants you to have it more than you want to have it. They will tell you. They will. You don't believe me? Go watch it on TV, but only watch it once because don't get stuck there. They'll tell you, God wants you to have this stuff more than you want it. And that's, now we have what Jesus is actually words right here. We have Jesus' words and we have their words. And that he wants, with his grace, he wants to give you the assurance of heaven, but he wants you to live the rest of your life for pleasure in yourself. That's what he wants for you. Again, this is not what I say. This is what there are people that are teaching this as the gospel. It's not a gospel. It's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. Some would teach that, yeah, there is a cross for us, but it's made of cotton. It's a very soft, it's never uncomfortable. It'll actually pamper you and make your life a lot easier. They'll teach you that cross, but not this cross. Not the Roman cross. They're teaching you about another cross. The soft cotton cross. It's called a gospel light, if you will. But it's not a gospel at all. D.L. Moody said this. God used D.L. Moody to shake two continents for Christ in the 1800s. And he said this. He goes, a man who covers up the cross though he may be an intellectual man, and he may draw large crowds, will have no ilk 
there, and his church will be nothing but a gilded sepulcher. A man that covers up the cross is covering up Christ. And a man that covers up Christ is anti-Christ, opposed to Christ. The gospel light, this gospel light, you know, this cotton cross, balsa wood cross, it's a lot more attractive. I'll admit it. It's very attractive. You can actually, you can actually get a lot of people to sign up for that, especially if there's a lot of perks that are going to come with it. But these words from Jesus, these words right here, verses 20 through 27, these words from him, they're the antidote to this reshaped gospel. Because when you hear that gospel, I'll say, all right, all right, all right. so you heard that on the TV, right? All right, now I want you to read this. Who, who said this? Well, Jesus said it. All right, who are you going to believe? You going to believe him? The one that actually came to give your light? Or are you going to believe what someone else is saying? And by the way, you and I have no right to ever change the gospel. Amen? We don't have the... We, I, I shudder to think, if I began changing the gospel to accommodate the ears of America in 2014, that's a dangerous thing, folks. We better never do it in this place. It is happening. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, who was near the end of his life, he was in prison in a concentration camp uh, before he was hanged by the Nazis at the age of 39, just months before the war ended. He almost made it. Hitler made sure he was hung before the Allies got there. But he wrote just days before his death in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote this. He said, there is no such thing as cheap grace. And he said that when, God, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And we know that's what Jesus says. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake is going to gain it. It doesn't matter if you, you know, just today is the anniversary for me. Today. My two-year anniversary when I left corporate America to be a full-time pastor. Today, September the 7th, I, did, I left in 2012. And by the way, part of me didn't want to go. I liked what I was doing. I had actually become somewhat competent at it. I liked what I was doing. The Lord says, it's time for you to move out. I ride by buildings. I used to be in meetings and stuff, and I ride by them. It's like a different life for me when I ride by them. And the Lord says, because souls are at stake. And you could, you could negotiate some contract or do this, do that. And the Lord says, what will that matter when I return? What will it matter? So I'm like, finally, I have to do this. Yes, sir, Lord. Because he cared. Two, two times this week, I had to go uh, visit somebody. One man is, uh, um, had, had three strokes in two days. He's only 55. I, I didn't know him. Another pastor called me and said, would you please go visit this man? I went and shared the gospel with him, his girlfriend, his daughter. I could not have done that if I was still working somewhere else. I couldn't have left. I couldn't have dropped everything and gone there. Couldn't have happened. And I've had a couple of those things just this week. And so the Lord says, if you could accomplish other things, what will it matter when I come back with the angels? 
I'll never care about that other stuff, and neither will you. There's things that Satan would have you focus on that the Lord would say, drop it. Leave it. He's not saying that you have to you know, be a pastor necessarily like I was called, but there are things that the, always your family says, you need to be over here, and you're, uh, uh, this is calling you, and this is calling you, all these distractions. The Lord says, take up your cross and follow me. A.W. Tozer said, the cross where Jesus died also became also the cross where his apostles died. The loss, the rejection, the shame belong both to Christ and all who in very truth are his. The cross that saves them also, saves, uh, also slays them. And anything short of this is a pseudo-faith and not true faith at all. A.W. Tozer, D.L. Moody, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they're all in heaven with the Lord. All of them had the same witness. They testified with the cloud of witnesses of Romans, I mean, Hebrews chapter 12 that this is the true gospel. Anything else that rises up that has it as a gospel light is not a gospel. But he goes on to say, you won't be ashamed when I come with the, when, he, when, I, when Jesus comes with his own glory and his fathers and the holy angels, we have the hope of heaven, folks, don't we? He, this, here's Jesus saying, this world isn't your home. This is a temporary thing. Temporary. It's just a temporary place. You're renting here, not owning. Amen? So this is temporary. And once you realize you're passing through, then you say, the cross makes sense to just go ahead and labor under that because this is a temporary thing. We're holding lightly to other things, but we're holding firm to the cross. Last thing he says in verse 27, he says, I tell you the truly, there's some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I don't have much time to spend on that, but what Jesus is saying there is that uh, some of them would actually see the glory of the kingdom of God. One we know for certain actually saw not only the glory of God before he died, but he actually saw the new Jerusalem coming down to heaven. That was John who wrote the book of Revelation and the book of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But Peter, James, and John in the very next section we go into next Sunday will actually see Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. They'll see Moses, they'll see Elijah, they'll actually see a glimpse of the portal of heaven coming down as well. And so Jesus is making that point that I'm going to reveal that future glory to a few and they're going to write it in the scriptures for you and me as a testimony to say, that's your future home. That's what he's saying. Some will see it, and I'm going to have them write about it, so the rest of you will know to keep on the straight and narrow path with the cross. Turn with me one passage as we close. I want us to read this together. Romans chapter 12. This is what Paul would later write. The Holy Spirit that helped bring him to Christ. Romans chapter 12. Look at what Paul writes. Very, very uh, much a parallel to what Jesus has instructed. And Paul writes this in Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, think of the cro cross and the blood of Christ, that you present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. 
You and I did not pay for salvation. We didn't give a dime for it. But Jesus said, now for the rest of your life, I want you to do my work, take up the cross that I've given you, because I have people that I want you to reach, souls that I want you to bring me to, people that I want you to minister to, and unless you have my cross on you, you'll miss those opportunities because you'll be out doing something completely irrelevant to the kingdom of God. And the Lord says, this, when you have this cross on you, Jesus said, as you die daily, Jesus said daily, Paul said present your bodies daily, Jesus said daily take up your cross, because when you daily take up your cross, that allows you to see the world as Jesus sees it, to pray when he says pray, to reach out when he says reach out, to actually know that what you do is not who you are. Who you are is a son and daughter of God, preparing for the kingdom, but also preparing other people too. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time again in your word. Lord, we know that these words are sobering words, but Lord, we know that they're also comforting when we embrace them willingly, Lord. You don't force us to take up our cross, but you bid us to take up the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that you did fulfill your mission. You did go to Jerusalem. You did willingly lay down. You said, no man takes my life, but you laid it down, a ransom for our sin. Lord, we thank you that you not only laid down upon that cross, but Lord, you bled and died, and then you conquered death with the resurrection. Forgive us, Lord, for laying the cross to the side, which we are prone to do. We ask even this morning, afresh and anew, Lord, we'll place it back upon us that we'll walk in obedience and in gratitude and in humility. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.